Okay, so um, I just want to go back very briefly um, to um, our approach to As I Lay Dying. Last time we talked about uh, the importance of the epic tradition uh, to the modernist novel uh, and the way that, especially the way that um, the voice of the dead and um, the uncertain boundaries between the human and the non-human are being reactivated and redeployed in As I Lay Dying. Uh, so today we're going to move on uh, to a somewhat different approach. This is really a different uh, way to contextualize uh, As I Lay Dying. And uh, it's more of a kind of an American uh, tradition uh, for this novel. And uh, in fact, we already began to see a little of that um, in the person uh, who um, is in one sense a key player, uh, but in another sense not um, the Eddie's partner um, in the adulterous affair, and uh, Faulkner uh, takes the name of that person from a historic figure, a very well-known preacher, 18th century preacher, George Whitfield, um, someone who actually had a very large presence in Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. Um, so this is the very dignified-looking uh, historical George Whitfield, and this is Faulkner's Whitfield. Uh, when he was on his horse, he was able to cross the river, as we know, uh, and he's on his way. In fact, he's approaching, he's right at the house. So um, Whitfield um, has a lot of, has a lot to be thankful for, and he's expressing his gratitude to God at this moment. It was he, in his infinite wisdom, that restrained the tale from her dying lips as she lay surrounded by those who loved and trusted her. Mine, the travail by water, which I sustain by the strength of his hand. Praise to thee in thy bounteous and omnipotent love. Oh, praise. Um, yes, I mean, he truly is a very lucky guy. Um, you know, she dies before she's able to give away his name. Maybe she never plans on it. She's too proud ever to want to give away his name. Um, so he's lucky in having chosen the right partner, someone who her lips are sealed when it comes to his name. Um, and he's also very lucky in the sense that his horse uh, is such a good swimmer that um, he's a, he's, the horse is able to cross the river when the mules um, drown. So um, this is truly, um, you know, he's truly a blessed figure, but of course I'm making fun of him as I indeed I think Faulkner wants us to. Um, the only way I think to take someone like Whitfield um, is to put him in one particular genre. And this is really what I'd like to argue today um, is the question of genre for As I Lay Dying. The only way to take Whitfield is to put him in the genre of comedy. And he's just a comic figure. You know, he's totally serious himself. He's congratulating himself and he's praising the Lord. But all the time when he's doing that, he's firmly ensconced in the comic tradition. Um, and it turns out that this um, self-congratulating, self-dignifying uh, kind of person actually has a president in American literature, a very prominent president. And it turns out that this predecessor is also a minister who has an affair with 
<laughs> of women. So we, you know, there's only one novel um, in American literature that um, that is like that, and not surprisingly, is a novel that we all recognize, *The Scarlet Letter*. Um, so this is Hawthorne's um, comic figure. Um, the Scarlet Letter is not really usually read um, as a comic novel, but I do think that Hawthorne is having fun when he's portraying Arthur Dimsdale. God knows, and he's merciful. He has proved his mercy, most of all in my afflictions, by giving me this burning torture to bear upon my breast. Praise be his name, his will be done. Farewell. Same, exactly the same combination, a woman whose lips are sealed, who would never give away the name of her partner, um, and the same kind of mercy from mercy in quotation marks from God. Um, in this in, in this case, um, Arthur Dimsdale is lucky, not in the sense that he has a horse uh, who's a good swimmer, uh, but in the sense that he dies right at that moment. Um, and so, you know, without in at, at the very moment when he's thanking God and he is forgiven, his sins are forgiven, he dies. So he um, is very lucky in that way. Um, and it um, suggests that from the very beginning, from the 19th century on, um, a story that otherwise would have been taken as tragic actually has a comic dimension to it. Um, it's just n not very easy to roll our eyes when we listen to someone like Whitfield and when we listen to someone like Arthur Dimsdale. Um, but even as we're rolling our eyes, um, I think that there are other things in those two novels that is very hard to roll our eyes over. So I want to turn now to this other dimension um, and want to begin with Hawthorne uh, by talking about obviously the much more important tragic dimension um, in The Scarlet Letter and it's on Hester Prynne. The effect of the symbol or rather of the position in respect to society that was indicated by it on the mind of Hester Prynne herself was powerful and peculiar. All the light and graceful foliage of her character had been withered up by this red-hot brand and had long ago fallen away, leaving a bare and hushed outline which might have been repulsive had she possessed friends or companions to be repelled by it. So just as um, Dimsdale and Whitfield are doubly lucky. Um, Hester Prynne is doubly cursed. Uh, she's cursed both in the most obvious way because she has to wear the scarlet letter for the rest of her life. Um, and she's also cursed, well, she's actually triply cursed. She has to wear the scarlet letter. Her whole being is transformed. So all the beauty of physical beauty, all the beauty of her mind seem to have gone away. Um, and she is just this very hush, forbidding character. Um, and that other people might have found repulsive if she had friends uh, to be repelled by. So, you know, really, she is an absolute have not um, at this point. Although Hawthorne, as you guys know who've read The Scarlet Letter, Hawthorne actually qualifies that this isn't quite the absolute ending of The Scarlet Letter, it's quite early. Um, so, um, but this is a kind of low point, absolute low point, the most tragic moment. Uh, for Hester in the Scarlet Letter. And um, I want to turn now from, from Hester 
to uh, a comparable figure in Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, um, and obviously it is Eddie, and she's especially tragic in relation to the two men in her life. First of all, uh, her relation to uh, Whitfield. While I waited for him in the woods, waiting for him before he saw me, I would think of him as dressed in sin. I would think of him as thinking of me as dressed also in sin, he the more beautiful, since the garment which here is changed for sin was sanctified. I would think of the sin as garments which we would remove in order to shape and coerce the terrible blood to the forlorn echo of the dead wood high in the air. This is about as um, joyous a description of any kind of romance. It's not even a romance. It's not adultery. There's no, there's no, there's no sex, obviously. <laughs> and as I lay dying, um, there's, um, there's almost no love. Um, it is just um, the, the whole act itself is coercing the terrible blood to the full-on echo of the dead air. So it's, um, if, if that is, you know, it's hard to understand why anyone would even want to do that, if that is the nature of the affair, but um, that's how Faulkner would like us to think of that affair between Addie and, uh, and Whitfield. And we can almost sort of see why she would be so forlorn because his, the fact that he's congratulating himself and counting himself lucky at the moment of her death suggests what kind of a lover he has been. Uh, so maybe it's not surprising that she should have been forlorn all the way through. Um, and it is also the case that she's forlorn for another reason. Um, and maybe that's why she got into the affair to begin with, uh, her relation to her husband. And I would think Anne's why ants? Why are you ants? I would think about his name until after a while I could see the word as a shape, a vessel. And I would watch him liquefy and flow into it like cold molasses flowing out of the darkness into the vessel until the jar stood full and motionless. A significant shape profoundly without life, like an empty door frame. Is the one of the most memorable descriptions of a terrible marriage, unbearable marriage, and um, I think that that's, that says it all. You know, it it doesn't exactly justify uh, Annie's action. Is it needs justify justification, um, but it really explains a lot, um, and it is in contrast to that to that cold molasses in the jar that all of a sudden we see another marriage in perspective. So I just want to refresh your memory about what we saw last time about Tal and Cora, because it would take a tight house for Cora to hold Cora, like a jar of milk in the spring. You've got to have a tight jar or you need a powerful spring. So if you have a big spring, why then you have the incentive to have tight, well-made jars because it is your milk, sour or not, because you would rather have milk that was sour than to have milk that won't because you are a man. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not a spectacular marriage, but it's a good marriage. Um, and it's um, a marriage that makes Tao feel like a man and probably Cora like a woman. Um, I don't mean to be sexist, <laughs> but um, just, just uh, 
um, just the general description of a good marriage. Um, so um, here's um, Tao and Cora um, as a foil, really, uh, to Addie and Anne's. Um, so it seems that right now we've uh, seen Addie mostly as a tragic figure, right, in relation to her two men. Um, and, uh, and as a kind of a descendant, 20th century descendant uh, of Hester Prynne. Um, but given the president of Hawthorne, given that there's really a comic dimension, even in the most tragic tale, we shouldn't, for, we shouldn't be surprised that there would also be a comparable comic dimension in As I Lay Dying as well. So I like to read the whole novel as, in some sense, a kind of constant negotiation between those two poles, between a comic pole, between comedy on the one hand and tragedy uh, on the other. And we can see the comedy coming in um, in Eddie's relation to her son, Vardaman, who's um, not quite fully retarded as Benji is. Um, but Faulkner is really interested in the slightly um, retarded mind. So Vardaman seems to be an instance of that. Uh, and it comes out in statements like, my mother is a fish. Um, I think that along with call me Ishmael, my mother is, is a fish. It's got to be one of the most famous lines in American literature. Um, and so why does, so this brings us back um, to the human and the non-human. Um, but it also now suggests another dimension, a, a generic dimension um, to um, Addie being a fish. And it turns out that she's not just any kind of a fish, but she's a fish out of water, which is, I guess, a comic restatement of the sense of desolation and the forlornness um, that she feels towards Whitfield and towards Anne's. I mean, it's exactly the same thing, except that when we say that she's a fish out of water, it's a completely different set of connotations. So this is um, Vardaman reporting on this fish that he, uh, that he just picked up, dead fish already dead, uh, that he's chopping up. Um, so, and you clean it, Anne says. He don't look around. Vardaman, oh, sorry. Um, this, is, this is actually, um, this is Dow reporting. You clean it, Anne said. He, do, he don't look around. Vardaman comes back and picks up the fish. It slides out of his hands, smearing wet dirt onto him and flops down, dirtying itself, get mouth, goggle-eyed, hiding into the dust, like it was ashamed of being dead, like it was in a hurry to get back hit again. Um, so along with the sense that Eddie is a misfit that is completely alone and by herself, even in a marriage and even in an adulterous affair, um, there's this additional element that she's ashamed of all of it. And we can see that shame um, in her reaction to uh, the horse that uh, Jewel acquires, right? And, you know, she's proud, she is proud, but she's also crying. Um, and Dao realizes that, um, that she's ashamed of her deceit at that moment. Um, so there's this terrible shame that's going to accompany her. Uh, in her death, um, and in the fish, it comes out as the fish being ashamed of being dead, um, even though that's you know is not a condition um, that we could that we could help. But nonetheless, this fish seems really ashamed of this elemental fact, 
Um, and in contrast, um, I think that the, actually just to um, stop for a moment, um, the fish actually would be a great paper topic um, for, for, for your final paper. Um, and uh, it would bring Hemingway and Faulkner together in a really interesting way. Um, so once again, I want to re-emphasize um, how interesting it might be to pick something that is peripheral, you know, not a key player, but an interesting entry point into the novels. So um, in thinking along those lines, um, we can go back um, to the fish in, in our time. Um, and it's a dead fish, two dead fish, um, but um, a totally different set of connotations that Hemingway uh, brings to the dead trout. Nick cleaned them, slitting them from the vent to the tip of the jaw. All the insides and the gills and tongue came out in one piece. They were both males, long gray-white strips of milk, smooth and clean, all the insides clean and compact, coming out all together. So this is Hemingway's idea of a good death. Um, is the death of human beings being actually uh, prefigured or maybe encoded into um, this very clean, very dignified death of the fish. There's no way we can avoid dying, um, but the least that we can ask for is that we should die in a manner that is fitting for us, um, a manner of death that is commensurate with the way that we've lived. Um, and the child has lived a very clean life, it's an important word to Hemingway, has lived a very clean life in the water. So it is fitting that the death should be commensurate with that. Um, and that is really a kind of utopian moment um, in Hemingway. And in contrast, this dirty fish out of water thinks a shame in, being ashamed into, unto death. Um, is the dystopian moment in Faulkner, but it's also a comic moment as well. So all I wish to say that comedy is obviously a very complicated and packed and, you know, in many ways contradictory phenomenon um, in Faulkner. Um, but I want, and it's with that understanding, you know, comedy in quotation marks in any ways, that I like to um, think about the whole structure uh, of As I Lay Dying um, as a negotiation between comedy and tragedy. And I'd like to bring up three sets of terms that we've been talking about all through the semester to see how comedy and tragedy get mapped onto these terms. Uh, one is the human and non-human that we've been talking about last time. Um, and then I want to bring Hemingway back. Um, it, it turns out that the two uh, categories, have and have not, set up by Hemingway will be key, actually, in the rest of the novels that we'll be reading. So I'll be using have and have not um, as key terms within a, a, a very useful analytic paradigm and uh, related to those, um, since we've been talking so much about kinship, beginning with The Sound of the Fury and also now um, As I Lay Dying Brothers, uh, who is a kin and who is a non-kin, Last time we saw that Jewel is in danger of being labeled non-kin by uh, his brother, Dao, and by his sister, Julie Dao. So who is going to be a non-kin at the end of this novel? But first, let's start out with the most obvious comic 
feature of SI Leidine, which is the most conventional ending, happy ending in marriage. Um, and if you guys haven't gotten to that point, I apologize, but there's no way to talk about this comedy without talking about the very last thing that we see um, in SI Leidine. It is cash and Joel and Vaderman and Dewey Dell process, kind of hanged off and proud to, with his teeth and all, even as he wouldn't look at it, meet Mrs. Bundren. So um, his wife isn't quite in the ground, um, and um, this is a very fast mover. Um, so he has acquired a new wife um, and other possessions as well, where he has teeth. Um, and so on. This is a new feature um, on ends. Um, so this is the, the, the sort of the cliched ending um, for comedy. You've got to have a marriage. And Faulkner very obligingly gives us a marriage at the end of As I Lay Dying. Um, but we just know that he's going to qualify it in some fashion. So right before we see uh, ends with his new wife and his teeth, his new teeth, um, we see something else, and that is just taking one step back. Who's that? Then we see it wasn't the grip that made him look different. It was his face, and Jew says, he's got them teeth. It was a fact. It made him look a foot taller, kind of holding his head up, hangdog and proud too. And then we see her behind him, carrying the other grip, a kind of duck-shaped woman, all dressed up. And then I see that the grip she was carrying was one of them little graphophones. It was a fact. All shut up and pretty as a picture. And every time a new record would come from the mail order and us sitting in the house in the window and listening to it, I would think, what a shame. Dao couldn't be to enjoy it too. So a lot of information is coming at us at this moment. New teeth, another possession, graphophone or gramophone, um, and the new phenomenon of uh, records coming by mail order. Um, this is truly the 20th century. Um, even though they're still meals, it, we're firmly in the 20th century. Um, and the crucial little detail at the end, the Dow will be there to enjoy the records. So um, we know right there, and this is very end, this is 260, so we know already what uh, has happened to Dao, but it's just repeating uh, what we've known prior to this moment, um, that is a reconstituting of the Bundren family, that one person is no longer kin, no longer in that family. So how does this happen? is what we need to find out. And we have to go back a few steps um, to find out how it is that Dao gets excluded from that family circle. Um, so, but just want to give you a couple of images why the gramophone would be such a desirable object, uh, just like the telephone. All this new equipment, um, just incredibly glamorous when they first appear. Um, so the, this Columbia gramophone. And um, I'd like to, um, since we have all these desirable objects here, um, it's obviously, um, the SLA dying is Faulkner's version of to have and have not. And right there, 
we know that ants has three very prized possessions, teeth, wife, and gramophone. Um, and it seems that in contrast, other people have all lost something. They all have been uh, reclassified in some sense as um, have not. So in, in many ways, this is kind of a zero-sum game uh, in uh, SLA dying, that one person gets a lot of stuff at the expense of someone else. It's a very uh, austere economic model that there's no pure gain in this world. Someone gains something, someone loses something. Um, and the three people who lose something in the course of ants acquiring so much, uh, the history, sons, cash, jewel, and Dao. Um, so let's just look at cash. Um, and I, I, I can't, you know, this is not really related to anything that I've been saying so far, but you know, it's clearly cash and jewel. Cash is the petty cash, and jewel is the one whose value cannot be uh, reckoned by cash. So Fong is really playing with the economic model in a big way. So maybe it's not surprising that you know it would also be a kind of eco economic logic um, that's determining the narrative logic in as I lay dying as well. But um, cash being named after petty cash, he's one who would um, go try to make three dollars uh, at the risk of not seeing his 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 mother uh, when she dies, not being with his mother when when she dies. Um, so petty cash. Um, but even though um, his being is measured by petty cash, um, even in spite of that, he doesn't can't always hold on to what he has little as what he does have initially, starting out. His face turned up a second when he was sliding back into the water. It was gray with his eyes closed and a long swipe of mud across his face. Then he let go and turned over in the water. He looked just like an old bundle of clothes, kind of washing up and down against the bank. He looked like he was laying there in the water on his face, rocking up and down a little, looking at something at the bottom. Uh, so Cash is momentarily non-human. He's lost his humanity. He looks like a bundle of old clothes. Um, and um, and we, we can all do that. You know, we, if we're floating in the river, um, unconscious, we can look like we are inanimate matter which is what cash is at this moment. Um, he could be inanimate matter, like a bundle of old clothes. Or uh, we can also think about different kind of kinship that is snapping in place, because we have actually, uh, Faulkner makes sure that we have a vivid memory of something else that also floated before lifeless in the water. Between the two hills, I see the muse once more. They row up out of the water in succession, turning completely over, the legs stiffly extended, as when they had lost contact with the earth. So the mules are floating belly up, the legs stiffly extended. Um, that's a kind of a unnatural posture for them. And Cash is floating face down, like he's looking at something at the bottom of the river. Uh, but either way, the, the two postures are almost symmetrical um, in the sense that uh, both the muse and cash are reduced to inanimate matter. Um, 
in, in that kind of posture. Um, and um, we know that the mules are emblems for toe, and um, they are also emblems for, it's not cow, it's cash, um, it's, it's for, for cash's um, kinship, uh, that he too is a creature uh, with feet of clay, and so um, this is reaffirming, reaffirming um, the fact that he's not capable of lots of things. He's a very good carpenter, um, but he's not capable of surviving in hostile environment, and the water is one of them. Um, so um, he, right there, is just that kinship that's being uh, reaffirmed. But we can also see Cash as um, an ironic instance of a half as well. Um, and this is something that will actually come into play in a big way in the last Hemingway novel. Um, that, in fact, it comes into play in two Hemingway novels. Um, I promise you that this ironic use of the half will be a central moment um, in For Whom the Bell Toes. But looking back, so we have that to look forward to, uh, but we can also look back to an earlier moment into Half and Half Not, when Harry Morgan is dying, uh, he's unconscious, um, and he feels that he has this rubber hose inside of him, right? So when we're talking about that moment, um, I was suggesting, uh, although I wasn't pushing very hard on that, um, that there was a moment of an ironic half. We don't actually have rubber hoses inside our bellies, uh, but they can sometimes feel that way. Um, and so it's an ironic possession, a very negative possession, ironically vested in us. Um, and here, um, it's the same idea in Faulkner, um, Cash as having an ironic possession that is make turns him into a casualty, as it did Harry Morgan in To Have and Have Not. Cash has a broken leg. He has had two broken legs. He lies on the box with a quilt rolled under his head and a piece of wood under his knee. I reckon we ought to left him at Armstead's process. I haven't got a broken leg, and Pa hasn't, and Dow hasn't, and it's just the bumps, Cash says. It's kind of grinds together a little on a bump. It don't bother none. So, Vardaman is the one who's speaking here. Vardaman is really rubbing in that Cash has a broken leg. He has had two in his life. He's managed to break both his legs um, in his occupation as a carpenter, falling down from some height. Uh, in this case, just uh, his leg is broken uh, by. Uh, actually by, by the horse um, and, and the log. Um, so um, he um, has, he, that's what he has. He's lost his tools at this point. He's lost his consciousness. Um, he's lost his leg. But what he has instead of a good leg is a broken leg. That is what is in his possession now. So it's definitely it's an ironic instance um, of uh, have. And, Vaderman is very, very glad that he doesn't have that. I don't have that. Pa doesn't have that. Dao doesn't have that. So definitely, it is the, the verb to have um, as a liability. Um, but we can also, so that is an instance uh, of ironizing that verb. But this also kind of a straightforward instance of cash as a have-not in a very simple, quantifiable way. Um, and actually, quantification is kind of interesting. 
um, in Faulkner as well. If we think of the entire novel, the whole narrative economy is kind of zero-sum game. Then actually quantifying who gets what and measuring that against who loses what, actually this kind of quantifying logic going on in uh, S.R.A. Dye. Um, so this is a quantifying moment um, in as I lay down. We know that the mules have drowned, so they have to get another team of mules. These are very, very poor people. A team of mules would cost $40. Um, and it seems that Anne actually has managed to come up with the $40. So Dow is trying to figure out where he got the $40 from. So that's what you were doing in Cash's clothes last night, Dow said. Cash aimed to buy that talking machine from Surat with that money, Dow said. Anne stood there, mumbling his mouth. Jew watched him. He never blinked yet. But that's just $8 more, Dow said, in that voice like he was just listening and never give a darn himself. That still won't buy a team. Ernst looked at Joe quick, kind of sliding his eyes that way. Then he looked down again. God knows if there was ever a man, he says. Still, they didn't say nothing. They just watched him waiting and him sliding his eyes toward the feet and up the legs, but no higher. And the horse, he says. So we know exactly what it takes to reach that $40 mark. He has to get $10 from Dewey Dow. <laughs> There's no time to talk about that. It's just straightforward. She has $10 um, from Leth that to, for the abortion, and he got the $10 from her. Um, and um, he gets $8 from uh, Cash. Cash was going to use that to buy a telephone. Um, that's very far from that goal of $40. So one very valuable thing has to be traded in order for him to get the $40. And there's just one thing left, and it's the most obvious item that is in anyone's possession. Um, so we can turn now to, you know, uh, Jews' horse obviously is key from beginning to end. Um, but I just, since we've been talking about kinship uh, between humans and animals, I just want to stop very briefly and and once again, hold out the conjecture. But I think that what Faulkner is in, in here is in some ways taking us back to the moment when Jewel um, is both a horse and a snake, right? We talked about that last time, that he's caught between two posts. He's both a, a horse, but also there's something snake-like about his movement. Um, and it seems that that association with the snake has been reinvested in ants. So we have the image of him repeated twice, and sliding his eyes towards Jewel, sliding his eyes toward the feet and up the legs, but no higher. It is that sliding motion that realigns the human-non-human configuration in As I Lay Dying, so that it is ants who is the snake in the family. Um, and it's as if Jewel has suddenly been free from his kinship with the snake because someone else, maybe this just this is also a zero-sum game. There's only one person in the family who could claim kinship with the snake. 
and ends right here is claiming kinship with the snake. So Zhu is going to relinquish his, his kinship um, and be redefined in a different way. So, um, but the, just to wrap up with cash, he's lost $8 once again, true to his name. That's what he loses, still a very petty sum. Um, but this is the big loser, um, and he has that much in his possession, so he can afford to lose big. Um, but let's start out with an image of Jewel um, as still a half, still having that thing. Uh, when um, it's clear that when it, the emerging situation is becoming clear to everyone, um, it is Jewel that Ennis is looking at, and Jewel has not reacted in any fashion. So this is a true um, turning point where things, or a moment of critical moment when things could have gone either way, right? So the horse is still in Jewel's possession. Um, he doesn't have to give up the horse. Um, it would be impossible for Ennis to take control of the horse. He's the last person to be able to control that wild horse. Only one person uh, can control that horse is Jewel. So this is a critical moment. How is and is going to be able to get a hold of the horse to sell the horse. Um, and it seems as if Jew is really tempted in one direction. This is a road that he could have taken, but I'm giving it away in the sense that no, it's the road not taken. But this is the moment where it looks like this is the road that he's about to take. Uh, so as soon as, as Jew hears that you know, the horse is part of the bargain, um, then it's spit slow and said hell. He turned and went on to the gate and unhitched the horse and got on it. They went out of sight that way, the two of them, looking like some kind of spotted cyclone. Still true to that original image of incredibly fast movement, almost superhuman in the speed with which the two of them move, and also superhuman, almost mythic, in the sense that man and horse had become one. This is the Hemingway. Um, image that is transposed uh, onto Falkland. This is the closest that Faulkner has will ever get to Hemingway, is Jew and the horse becoming one. Um, so it looks like that, you know, Anne's is never going to be able to get $40 because Jew and the horse have cleared out. Um, Jew can still be a half if this were the ending of As I Lay Dying. But this is what happens after that. The horse, I said, Anne's boy taking that horse and cleaned out last night, probably halfway to Texas by now. And Anne's, I don't know who brung it, used to said, I never see them. I just found a horse in the barn this morning when I went to feed. And I told Mr. Snoops, and he said to bring the team over here. So the team of Mew arrives because Mr. Snoops did get the horse, and only one person could have brought the horse to Snopes. So um, Joe becomes a half-not, and we can see why he's losing his kinship to the snake. He's becoming a half-not by voluntarily relinquishing his possession of the horse. He is the most tragic figure, in one sense, uh, because he has the most power to refuse to relinquish that possession. And he is the one who actually, out of his power, actually willfully, deliberately, consciously gives up that possession. Um, so um, it, 
the time has come for remapping of the whole kinship structure um, in SLA Dying. Jew has, up to this point, been, been the outsider to the family. He's the one that everyone picks out as being a non-kin by Dao and by Du Dao. Um, but this is the moment when all of a sudden he's been admitted for the first time into the family circle. And what's interesting is that this redrawing of the kinship lines is dramatized by Faulkner as the racialization of both Cash and Jewel. And we can see why they are both racialized at this critical moment. They become kin because they both become black. Cash's leg and foot turned black. He held the lamb and looked at Cash's foot and leg where it was black. Your foot looks like a nigger's foot, Cash, I said. Jewel was lying on his back, on his face. His back was red. Dudel put the medicine on it. The medicine was made out of butter and soot to draw out the fire. Then his back was black. Does it hurt, Joel? I said. Your back looks like a nigger's, Joel. I said. Cash's foot and leg look like a nigger's. This is really heavy-handed on the part of Faulkner. Uh, they both look like niggers. Um, and for two different reasons. Um, Cash's foot um, is turning black because they put concrete on it right, to fix the leg, to fix the broken leg. The bungeons have put concrete on it. That's the way of, that's the medical practice within the bungeon family. So his foot is turning black at this moment. Um, and Jules' um, back is black because he had just been in the fire. He's the one who actually saved the coffin, although it's a dubious thing to do. He's the one who actually saves the coffin when the barn was set on fire. Um, and as a consequence, he, get, he gets this severe burn on his back. And that's why his back is all black. So each of them actually um, has lost something and they've gained something. They don't have a normal color leg. They don't have a normal color back. They've gotten, they've gained a black leg and a black back. Um, and is in as a result of you know being blackened in this manner, but all of a sudden they become brothers. So um, this is a new uh, concept of brotherhood uh, and new membership being proposed uh, for that kinship structure. Uh, Joe, who's previously been outside of that kinship kinship circle, has been admitted, and we'll see who is going to be uh, excluded once again it's a zero-sum game. You know, someone has been let in. Um, who is it and for what reason is he going to be left out? It wasn't nothing else to do. It was either send him to Jackson or have Gillespie sue us because he knows some way the Dow set fire to it. So everything is interlocking in Faulkner. It is that fire that turns Jules back into a black back. And the same fire also has consequences for other people. You don't set fire to a barn without someone paying for it. And it turns out that 
it is Tao who is going to pay for it. And the language that is used here, this is Cash who is speaking, um, still in the voice of someone who's used to being helpless and used to not being able to modify the situation that is given. There's just nothing else to do. One person has to take the blame and to take the consequences of that blame. So one person has to be sent to Jackson. And we know what Jackson is. It already has been a looming presence in the Sound of Fury as the ultimate home for Benji. Um, and it is actually the home for, for Dao much sooner than it will be for Benji. So let's look at two instances of the reconstituting, of the narrowing uh, of the kinship circle. And Cash uh, talking now and looking at his brother, Dao, but beginning to see his brother as a non-kin. When Dao, this is Cash speaking, um, and he's actually, he sort of agrees with Dao that it might, maybe it's a good thing to burn up the coffin. You know, it's just so humiliating for Eddie to be smelling and to have all the buses descending on her. You know, they keep counting 10 and then more and more. Um, and everyone, all the towns they go through, uh, wanting to sue them because of the terrible smell that is coming from the coffin. Um, so because of this other humiliation that's been visited upon Eddie, it would have been a good thing to burn up the coffin. Um, and because it wasn't going to happen, nobody else was going to do it, Dow was going to do it. So Cash can see the reason for wanting to burn up the coffin, but he can also see that it maybe it's not such a great thing for the person who's doing it. When Dow seemed that look like one of us would have to do something, I can almost believe he done right in a way. But I don't reckon nothing excuses setting fire to a man's barn and endangering his stock and destroying his property. That's how I reckon a man is crazy. That's how he can see eye to eye. That's how he can't see eye to eye with other folks. And I reckon there ain't nothing else to do with him but what the most folks says is right. So Cash sealing his bond with Dao as Dao's brother. The kinship bond is superseded by a much more clear-cut property relation. If you, Dao really has no relation to Gillespie other than that he's the destroyer of Gillespie's property. But it is as a destroyer of Gillespie's property that he will get sent to Jackson. It is that impersonal property relationship that will define Dao in the end and not his kinship with his brother, with his two brothers. Um, so this is the exclusion, the beginning of the exclusion and the logic for that exclusion uh, of Dao from that family circle. Um, but it is Vardaman who puts the case most strongly and clearly. Vardaman talking about Dao. He went to Jackson. He went crazy and went to Jackson, both. Lots of people didn't go crazy. Pa and Cash and Joe and Dewey, Dale and me didn't go crazy. We never did go crazy. We didn't go to Jackson either. This, this is a child. Uh, he's the cruelest but he's also the most honest um, that 
the family from now on is going to be Pa and Cash and Jewel and Duodell and me, Fatherman, is not going to include Dell anymore. It's been radically reconstituted. Um, and it is on the basis of that reconstitution that we can think about Dao as a have-not, as the ultimate have-not. I think Dao and Zhu are symmetrical in that sense. Zhu has given up the thing that is most monetary, monetarily valuable, and Dao has given up the thing that is most humanly valuable. Dao has gone to Jackson. This is Dao speaking, and he's referring to himself in the third person, talking about himself as in the third person. Dao has gone to Jackson. They put him on the train laughing, down the long car, car laughing, and heads turning like the heads of owls when he passed. What are you laughing at? I said, yes, 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 yes. Dao is our brother, our brother Dao, our brother Dao in a cage in Jackson where his grime hands lying light in the interstices looking out he foams. Yes, 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 yes. So he's lost his mind. That's what there is to lose in the course of this novel. He has lost his family. We know that that's one of the uh, non-monetary things that can also be lost. He's lost his brothers. He's lost everything. He's lost his freedom. And he also has lost his mind. So we can't really think of a darker ending than this. And it says a lot about Faulkner that this darkest of endings is actually stuck in the middle of a story that actually has a comic ending. And that's what Faulkner does with genres.